do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture. More depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Agriculture as if the Planet Mattered. In these interviews, I'm talking to people who are scaling up the sector, either by increasing the influx of capital or by working on the ground to scale up the enterprises on the ground. Why regenerative agriculture? Because so many of the world current issues come together in this subject, from drought to water scarcity, climate change, social issues, hunger, obesity, all have a connection to how we grow food and what we eat. You're going to listen to an interview with Mike Korczynski, founder and CEO of Wildlife Works. We're going to discuss many things in this interview, from why agriculture is taking a more central stage in the whole CO2 discussion, what Paris and the Paris Agreement did to his company, and the holy grail of forest and landscape protection. Um, is that coming through to you? I have. Yeah. I can hear the dog, but that's. He'll. Uh... If it does, I mean that's that's wildlife works. I mean there's of course going to be noise of animals in the background. <laughs> they, 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 it should stop as you, as you said we're wildlife works they will be quiet eventually don't, don't worry about it I will start so welcome to investing in regenerative agriculture agriculture as if the planet mattered I'm Koen van Seyen the host of today and in the podcast today I'm talking to Mike Korczynski founder of Wildlife Works one of the world's leading REDD plus organizations using voluntary CO2 credits for ecosystem restoration with local stakeholders welcome Mike thank you thank you very much Koen and to dive into immediately a personal question, um, why are you doing what you're doing? Um, the, the, the honest answer is elephants, I think. Um, I started uh, my love of elephants when I was, I don't know, four years old or something and lived in a place that didn't have any, um, but collected lots of little elephant statues and figurines everywhere I went as a, with my allowance when I was a kid. And then when I um, was not a kid anymore and had a little bit of time and a little bit of money, I had promised myself I would go see elephants. And so uh, I did 20 years ago, 20, a little over 20 years ago now, went to Africa for the first time and was um, 
uh, was taken aback by how astonishing elephants were. I used to say that my first reaction was jaw-dropping splendor. And then, um, and then very quickly, because I, can't, I have an analytical background, uh, I couldn't help but see the challenges that they were facing. Um, and so I, uh, and the principal challenge 20 years ago, uh, interestingly, was not ivory poaching. That is today's challenge for sure for elephants. But 20 years ago was a, there was a lull in poaching. That, but the, the challenge that I saw was a, a conflict with local communities in Africa that were growing again for the first time. Uh, in in many centuries, if not millennia, uh, because of better health care and uh, to some degree because of of access to aid and food aid, which which made uh, the carrying capacity of the land somewhat irrelevant. So I could see that these growing communities were were now in pushing into wilderness again, probably again for the first time in hundreds of years in some cases, and we're coming into conflict with with the wildlife and in particular with elephants. And that in it struck me that in that conflict, uh, which there would, could only be one winner, uh, humans are very, very creative and aggressive as a species when our survival is at stake. So um, it's it seemed obvious to me that a solution needed to be found where the wildlife would be seen as an asset to the community, not just a, a global asset of, of uh, great value, but a local asset. And that if we couldn't find a way to make wildlife work for local communities, then uh, slowly but surely the wildlife would be displaced, um, as it essentially has in, in most of the developed world. So I started Wildlife Works with the idea that you need to find a way to bring economic value to the communities from from wildlife uh, so elephants and all, all stemmed from from the love of elephants and trying to find a way but of course once I got into that puzzle in in, in more detail it became obvious that there would be uh, the, the, you know that the communities had great need and that and that these uh, you know, beautiful villages and cultures across Africa, and now, of course, globally, uh, are under threat equally, and um, and that our work really revolves now mostly in these wilderness areas around helping communities to find a wildlife-friendly and forest-friendly development path. Yeah, and if you would describe, I mean, I'm, I'm really struck by your story. I still remember the first time I saw a, a, an elephant in the wild, which is, I think, a, a pretty much a life-changing experience. And and if you look at Wildlife Works as a as a company and as an idea, um, and maybe the initial days and and the current days and the future, like if you look at it in three parts, um, what has changed? Um, and, and what will change in the future? This is a very big question. I do realize that, but hopefully you have a, a few big thoughts that you started with and maybe you're doing now differently and you hopefully will do differently in the future, or your hope at least. Right. Uh, very much so, yeah. Um, things have changed significantly over the years for us. 
So at the beginning, we we were a, a business because I, I didn't I came from the business world and, and had had a couple of uh, business efforts prior to starting Wildlife Works. Um, so and I also felt that the conservation uh, um, charitable conservation community or the NGO community was uh, doing the best it could with really quite limited funding relative to the size of the global marketplace. The size of funding for international wildlife conservation is tiny. It's, it's microscopic. Uh, and so it, it dawned on me that if the solution that I was going to work on was just to compete with those people for money and, and ideas, it would be a very bad idea for me. So um, so the structure of Wildlife Works from the beginning has been structured as a business with the idea that we need to bring new sources. Uh, we, need to, we need to do two things, which I felt a business was, was capable of doing. One, we need to engage the marketplace directly, because as long as the multi-trillion dollar global marketplace is trashing the planet, then the small amounts, uh, as well-intentioned as they are, of, of charitable money and sovereign money, for aid will not be able to repair the damage. There was, there's no question in my mind. So, so part of our mission was to engage the global marketplace and, and redirect their energy towards being part of the solution wherever possible. Uh, first do no harm and then, and then be actually positive in being part of a solution for wildlife conservation and, and forest conservation. So that was one aspect of what we chose to do. The other piece of it was really just a different funding stream that, that I didn't want to be out there competing with with uh, these uh, noble organizations that have been around for many years uh, for uh, as for a source of funding. So we wanted to self-fund through through business activities where we could provide value uh, to an organization uh, or, or a consumer and, and, and get paid in return and use that money as a new source of, of conservation finance. So for that, those were the two aspects that that uh, dictated the model that we have. So we are a for-profit model, very small company still, um, with a big reach, as we like to say. Um, and uh, in the beginning, how that model was Im- implemented, this in the beginning, which is 1997, um, the Kyoto Protocol did not exist. So greenhouse, the the greenhouse gas protocols that are now part of everyday conversation were, were not part of everyday conversation. Uh, Kyoto had not happened. So, so at the beginning of the company, we, we, um, we tried to find a way to tie the production of goods in a rural community to the global marketplace. We thought, gee, you know, uh, just imagine if every product that, uh, I don't know, the Banana Republic, let's say, because they have a, a name that implies that they might be located in a developing country, uh, let's just say that every product they made was was sourced in a fair trade, sustainable way from a rural community that lived with wildlife. Can you imagine the impact of all that funding going into these communities? And um, if you could do it in a way where the success of the brand was dependent on protection of wildlife and and forests uh, so that the consumers buying and the growth of the company was dependent on maintaining and improving the quality of, of the environment for wildlife and forest, then you really have something significant and you'd set a, a conservation on a new course uh, with, a, with a, um, a new set of funding and a new relationship really with, with rural communities, which is something that's also was important to me that 
that rural communities needed to be part of the solution and needed to feel that the solution included was inclusive of them. So when we started the company, it's a long way round of saying when we started, we made T-shirts. Believe it or not, we taught we we wanted to produce something in rural Kenya uh, in an elephant uh, sanctuary. We wanted to produce something that was not going to consume local resources in an air, in a in a fragile ecosystem. So we we decided not to do anything agricultural in that community. That community has some very unique characteristics related to agriculture. It's very, very dry. That's the main one. Um, so we chose there to make products and brand them under the Wildlife Works brand and then sell those products to the international community. Uh, and the jobs in the in the in what we call our eco-factory, which is a relatively tiny, by international standards, uh, rammed earth sewing facility in the bush, those jobs gave the women in the community some uh, source of income to put their kids through school, and we tied that back to the conservation of wildlife. So the, the compact with the community was, look, uh, we can't compete with the real Banana Republic or, or the Gap um, on marketing because they spend vast sums of money convincing people to buy their goods. So we're going to need passion. We're going to need passionate, loyal consumers to buy our goods because we're we're using their money to protect wildlife. And so that, from the beginning, was the the model that we set up. And that model ran for about ten years. Uh, it's still going today. I will I'll, I'll add that, that that factory is still alive and and well and running. And make uh, but mostly we make product for other uh, groups now because the the idea of a fair trade uh, factory in the middle of an elephant sanctuary became quite interesting to a number of other companies that were trying to improve their environmental performance. So we do make product for other brands now, uh, and that it continues to be an important uh, um, activity of our project as far as job creation, and in particular for women, uh, women's job creation is concerned. Um, but about 10 years ago, uh, of course, Kyoto happened in 1998, uh, conversations about Greenhouse gases and climate change started before that, but really in earnest at that time. And then protocols were established for how we might mitigate the impacts of climate. And, and among those conversations were conversations about forests. And, and for reasons that, that are, are sad historical reasons, the forests were excluded. The, the protection of forests were excluded from the Kyoto Protocol. But conversations continued amongst conservationists about the value of forests in, in the climate fight. And in roughly 2005, uh, forests re-entered the dialogue. And, um, and this idea of red plus, re reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, came into uh, discussion within the UN and within the surrounding uh, um, activities. And so we we looked at that very closely and realized that the emerging red plus mechanism was really a very ideal financing mechanism for the work we were doing and for the work of conservation in many cases uh, because uh, well, for a number of reasons but it, it essentially is a payment for ecosystem services or at least that was the promise and uh, we'll come back to how long it's taken to fulfill on that promise but the idea of forests providing great value in climate mitigation uh, and the, the more important idea, more urgent idea that destroying forests accelerates climate change because it releases vast amounts of carbon stored in the trees 
into the atmosphere. Um, so instead of being a, uh, an assistant in helping us mitigate the impacts of our human activity on the planet by absorbing carbon, which is what trees do to grow, uh, destroying them reverses that process and puts the carbon back in the atmosphere. So, so Red Plus uh, recognized that and uh, we decided to get behind that. So in 2009, we launched a new company, a new sub company called Wildlife Works Carbon, which was really to bring a new revenue stream to our work and then hopefully to conservation in general um, through demonstrating the value of protecting forests and, re and avoiding these emissions and then finding uh, organizations willing to pay for that service. Um, so we now are, you know, 90 plus percent funded uh, through the the protection of forests, the, the working for through working with communities in endangered forests that were disappearing to try and find ways for the community to, to agree to stop destroying the forest in return for economic benefit. And we do that work now, not just in Kenya, but in, in also in the DRC, uh, the Congo, which is the second largest tropical forest on earth. Uh, and probably in my opinion, uh, the next big battlefront um, at the Amazon and Indonesia are, are in the top three forests, Amazon one, Congo Basin 2 and Indonesia 3 um, and they have their own unique challenges but the DRC is an emerging African country with a large population and a massive massive uh, resources so um, we our second project is in the DRC to try and provide a, 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 a successful model for conserving the Congo Basin forest uh, while allowing communities to achieve their their development goals so we're now so that's the so the model has changed although the activities that we do interestingly are essentially the same as they were before we work to create value for communities we work to create jobs for communities we we protect their forest on their behalf although we 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 do not have guns we're we're we're, we're famous for i suppose and in some cases vilified by the gun toting crowd for for doing our work without shooting people um even though periodically we get shot at um, but we've been very successful at protecting forests with the support of communities, and therefore we generally don't need guns. Uh, and so we have a few other projects around the world now in Cambodia and in, uh, in, that we are um, consulting on with governments and other conservation NGOs to try and expand the footprint of our expertise beyond our own means. So. Uh, and I do believe uh, that the Red Plus model is here to stay. I think that recent events in in the UN climate framework, for example, the Paris Agreement, uh, really um, cast in stone the the participation of Red Plus in future climate models and, and future climate markets. Uh, I, we believe, um, and while some of the details are still being worked, details are still being worked out. The, the momentum towards acknowledging the value of protecting forests for climate is very obvious, and, uh, and that really fuels our company today. And, and talking about Paris, um, I read it was, was quite a tough year before Paris for, for you because there was so much of uncertainty around it. Now looking back at 2016, Uh, did Paris really change um, conversations you have or had with companies? Did it really shift something? Did you s sense that after Paris, 
it's a it's we're in a different uh, a different chapter of this discussion or is it still very uncertain uh, if you look at the, the co2 market basically um no i mean it was really a sea change not not so much that that overnight uh all the players all the conservation groups you know were were uh, instantly financially secure in all their efforts because of of paris but um but what what is crystal clear now is the is the path that we're on that was the the path was very unclear and and the global support for that path was very unclear uh you know it, it waxed and waned significantly in the years leading up to paris uh and in particular in in 2016 it was there was a lot of uncertainty a lot of people as you pointed out just waiting to see what happened in paris um, but no, we've we've seen as a, we ourselves have seen an immediate benefit from Paris from the Paris Agreement in in terms of of uh, well the first one is that it's now part of the global conversation in a way meeting climate in in a way that it never was especially in in the U S which is where I live uh, it has become you know a, a central theme in society here very quickly and the Paris Agreement and the the lead up and follow on to Paris really, really made that happen, in my opinion, um, as well as the, the crazy vitriolic presidential election that we just had that played a role too. But, um, but uh, um, principally, so yes, I, we have seen a change. I think the path is now clear. The timelines are still somewhat unclear. I mean, these are these are not short term initiatives. These are long term initiatives, and so. The, and they are because they are they they originate in the UN, uh, which is essentially a club of nations. Uh, uh, they take decisions take a long time, and it's a very unwieldy ship to redirect. So we anticipate some turbulence in the path, uh, but the direction of the path and the and the outcome and the role that forests need to play in that outcome is now pretty clear. And that that is making all of our conversations with corporate clients and co consumers much simpler because we don't have to explain the purpose of protecting forests uh, and 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 avoiding damaging the climate anymore. Yeah, the the why is is easy, and you you basically can skip and go to the the what and how and have a more practical discussion immediately. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I would say that we're still, you know, obviously people rightly are focused on fossil fuels and 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 the the divestment of uh, not just financially from fossil fuels, but but uh, the divestment of our society from fossil fuels, which is a far bigger issue than the divestment financially. Um, and so people are rightly focused on that issue. But our our uh, but there is a growing awareness of the role of forests and that that if uh, if uh, the mighty Elon Musk was able to convince the whole world to transport people and things around the planet tomorrow using his batteries, uh, the climate would still be in trouble if we don't stop chopping down forests. No one's chopping down a forest to power a car today. So the destruction of forests and the, as well as, by the way, the, the reduction of emissions in rural agriculture and in uh, both at commercial scale and smallholder scale, those challenges remain and are a little bit less discussed in in the world than 
than the fossil fuel challenge, but both are necessary, I would argue mandatory, for a healthy future for the planet and in, and the the forest and agriculture problem is a much much more direct impact on on other species uh, which is which remains my primary interest is how do we ensure that through our development and our success as a species we don't remove all the other species from the planet and, and impoverish ourselves immeasurably in the process yeah, and probably, I mean, I, I can see the attention for, for agriculture, land use, forest, etc. growing. Of course, it's not at the level of, of fossil fuels yet, but more and more people see it as a as a second essential step because it's probably one of the few areas where a lot of things come together and you have the option to actually be a carbon sink and have all the social benefits and all the smallholder farmers and all the wildlife and biodiversity benefits that come with sustainable land use or regenerative agriculture so i think it's 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 here to stay and will will only keep growing luckily and and when you look at um a year from now so we're january 2017 now paris was about a year and a bit ago um a year from now what what do you hope and what do you think has changed for you for you personally and and uh, business wise um one of the first things we've seen um post Paris is that, of course, let's be clear on what Paris did. Paris created a new agreement that comes into effect in 2020 or post 2020. So 2021. So the rules that Paris agreed on, which include the the benefit to society of protecting forests and avoiding emissions from, from the destruction of forests, those benefits uh, will only accrue uh, officially from 2021. So, but uh, so what? But what we've seen now, uh, and what has changed our our world, and and continues to change it, is that that we are now uh, able to enter into long term agreements with organizations that stretch from today into 2021. So, so there are now companies that have an interest in supporting the reduction of emissions in in forests. Uh, there is, a, and we can talk about why they want to do that. But there are many reasons. But um, but in general, they're they're acknowledging their own footprint in a way and their inability to reduce their own footprint to zero uh, without uh, paying somebody else for performing the service of reducing emissions elsewhere. That's one reason. And another reason is just uh, it's a conservation finance model that they were already pursuing, and it's just a more efficient one in their minds. But in, as a result, we're getting long-term contracts where organizations will sign an agreement for us to protect the forest and provide them with these verified emission reductions, which is the currency of, of Red Plus, um, uh, for a n- multiple years uh, through the, the transition towards the implementation of the Paris Agreement. Um, and that's, that, that has been immediately helpful to us. So, and I, we anticipate that the pressure uh, for organizations to reduce their footprint or reduce their, their net impact in, will just intensify as we approach the the, de- the the implementation year of the Paris Agreement. So we would see that the pressure on organizations to do whatever they can to contribute to a reduction in global footprint, global carbon footprint, will intensify is intensifying and will continue to intensify. Uh, and in particular, as you pointed out, in this focus on sustainable land use has in really caught on with the 
the high volume agricultural commodity buyers or or users of land for agricultural purposes they're recognizing that their own sustainability is dependent on the sustainability of these landscapes and they are now uh, seriously engaged in conver- conversations about how to make sure that they can contribute to the long-term viability of these landscapes in which they source their materials rather than be an agent of of destruction to these landscapes, which of course they would all acknowledge they have been historically. Um, so, so there's a big transition happening. I expect it's going to accelerate over the next five years and more and more opportunities to to provide uh, financing for conservation of forests will will arise, including the one mentioned in the Paris Agreement itself, this, this sustainable development mechanism uh, that um, we believe that needs to be clearly defined in the coming years. So we, we do anticipate uh, significant progress year by year, uh, month by month in some cases, towards uh, there being a recognition of uh, and, a, and, a, and a broader market for the kind of services we and other conservation groups provide in protecting forest. The holy grail for us, uh, I think, and for the planet eventually, is to get beyond the the idea of avoiding deforestation and and move to a a place where we we are valuing intact ecosystems. Um, there is lots of for all the services they provide: water, uh, climate, <clears throat> pollination. Um, etc., etc. There are many, many uh, much more intelligent folks studying the true value of natural ecosystems. Um, but but we, we live in them, we work in them, and we, we know the, the tremendous range of values they provide for local communities and for the world at large. And eventually, we need to get to a model uh, where we're not just concerned about reducing current emissions, because hopefully we've, we've stopped current emissions levels um, but we still need forests, and so we still and we still need to, to for those forests to have a value uh, in real terms, uh, not just in hypothetical terms or or emotional or philosophical or ideological terms. So I think the next generation of discussion will go beyond reducing emissions and towards um, avoiding future emissions by placing value on intact ecosystems, and that's some work that we're we're engaged in intellectually, uh, even though it's, I think, a long way off, uh, and we have much to do just to stem the, the enormous number of emissions from deforestation that are occurring today. Do you want to learn how to invest, or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. And when you look at, at today and, and now in your current work, what have, has kept you up um, during the last few months uh, work-wise? And, uh... um, well, I must have been, I had one very sleepless night on uh, was it November 8th or something, whenever the American election occurred. Um, yeah, me too. I mean, I, me too. 
you know, I, I think, uh, well, uh, I, we, work in, we work in developing countries. We work in the, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So in December, there was, there was a, um, you know, there is a, a messy transition going on there. Um, from, but, uh, but, and so things looked a little from, from the current president to, to a democratic successor. There hasn't been an election for, I don't know how many years, 10 years, I think. Um, and so it, that looked like it might get a little messy again in December, but that they, they, to their credit, they, they came up with a, an agreeable solution between the, the president and the, the opposition. Uh, so stability has returned. So I, but I, with the, because of the places we work in, we're always concerned that political instability that has nothing to do with the work we do or, or the international climate work uh, could interfere with our ability to do what we do and, and to be successful in, in helping rural communities. Um, so that, that kept me awake for a little while in December. The, and, and I would say that the jury is still out on whether or not the U.S. will continue to be a leader in, in climate. It's arguable whether they ever were a leader, I will add. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the, the rhetoric from the, the Obama administration, as well as real action, was, um, was very positive in bringing the U.S. into the fray uh, and demonstrating that the U.S. can be a, a, a legitimate partner in the international climate challenge. Um, you, you and everybody on this podcast probably knows that the that U.S. was one of the one of very very few non-signatories to the Kyoto Protocol, or non non not not non-signatories, but non-ratifiers. So, um, so having the U.S. in the Paris Agreement was critically important, uh, and so I still occasionally get worried about what the administration currently will will do. But when you're in the world that we, that I inhabit where all kinds of challenges pop up on a day-to-day -day basis, you tend to just wait until they occur and then look and then try and figure out how to overcome them. So I'm not going to anticipate things that the, the new administration might do that will, that will create more challenges for us, although there, some of the indicators are there that they, they may. Um, I'm going to go with the logic and common sense of humanity, uh, pushing towards an inexorable progress on climate uh, that will drag the U.S. administration again, kicking and screaming, possibly this time, uh, forward in the fight against climate. And I, and I think that the, the main change that, that stops me from worrying too much about that issue is that the U.S. public now is quite engaged, although uh, as, we, as the whole world saw, we're a very, um, we're a very uh, split uh, nation in terms of our uh, opinions about these kinds of issues. But but there is tremendous public support in, 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 and really in the marketplace, there's tremendous support in the U.S. now for, for climate uh, work. So I think, uh, so that doesn't worry me too much. Um, yeah, ivory poaching keeps me awake, I have to admit. My love of elephants now and the, and the threat to elephants has moved from habitat loss and conflict with growing communities to, to them being slaughtered en masse for their teeth, which is very tragic and sad again, uh, that we as a species would go backwards. Um, but even there, there's been some progress. Um, the, the Chinese government recently made an announcement they were gonna make ivory trade illegal, period, rather than illegal, ha-ha. Uh, um, and so we'll see what that does to the trade. Unfortunately, the trade is not just constrained to to China these days, but um, but they were the largest market by far. So 
Uh, we hope that that will have a significant impact on the future of elephants. But uh, but it was looking pretty grim there for elephants for, and it still is to a degree in some countries, but uh, it was looking pretty grim for the survival of elephants in the wild uh, two or three years ago. So that, that gives me headaches. Uh, we have people who are at risk in our projects trying to protect wildlife and forests. And so that keeps me awake occasionally when something exciting, too exciting happens in one of those countries. Um, otherwise, I'm fairly bullish about the work we do. Oh, and then, you know, we've, we carry a, an enormous financial burden having been 20 years at this game, waiting for the world to catch on to the value of the work we do. So we're, so I have a number of financial headaches that keep me awake from time to time, but we're, we're, uh, we're still here and, and still providing some leadership, I hope, in this space. Um, including, interestingly, uh, to tie into your, your core theme, you know, the work we do with rural communities and smallholders on, on sustainable agriculture, you know, historically the work on sustainable agriculture was focused on the sustainability of the agriculture itself, and it's, it's only very recently that that definition has extended to adjacent forests and wilderness. Um, you know, essentially agriculture and forests are in opposition. They, you can't grow very much in a forest. So for, for the whole history of, of society post coming out of the forests, we've been doing our very best to get rid of forests and replace them with pro what we call productive agriculture. Um, and so, you know, creating a new model. And do you see that change now? Uh, no, I mean, well, I mean, we're in the process of, of, of trying to lead that change, but it's a very difficult change because, you know, because uh, it's ingrained in, in societies all over the world that, that forests are bad and, and farms are good. And that, uh, that if they had the capacity to destroy forest and, and plant more crops they would have done in many places of the world and we would have lost a lot more forest and now they that now that technological advances are occurring and that global the market truly is global and that that organizations can source uh, food from anywhere and china can source food from anywhere to a large degree uh that issue is really front and center again which is how do you feed the world without destroying more forest um and and i think the good news is that it's 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 the, that is the conversation now. It, it isn't just how do you feed the world, although in some circles it still is. How do you feed the world, uh, the 9 billion people that we will be, <clears throat> with, uh, regardless? And I, I think that that's understandable. Um, but uh, in a great majority of people that think about these things now, the conversation is how do we feed the world without destroying the remaining forest? And in fact, how, does the remaining, how is the remaining forest essential to our ability to feed the world going forward? Um, and that that is a sea change in, in the thought process at an international level. At the farm and at the smallholder level, uh, it depends where, where you are, whether or not that, that change has taken place. If you are a Congolese smallholder and you'd like to grow something that needs sunshine, uh, you don't like forest. And um, so we have to try and find ways for them to get a lot of value out of the land that's already been deforested. Uh, but but solutions need to be, you know, when you're in the world we are, which is in a very local place trying to protect a very local forest, you need a solution for that local village and that local farmer. You can't, it's not good enough to say, there's all this deforested land in the Amazon. We don't need to worry about 
taking down another tree to feed ourselves, well, I'm sorry, but the guy in the Congo cannot eat from the food from the Amazon. So, um, so these problems still exist in, in, in real terms and trying to find models that, that show the value of forests to these rural communities uh, is still a challenge. But and it, to a large degree, that's where the carbon value comes in because we, we can show the farmers that by protecting the intact forest, they can receive another income stream that is more potentially sustainable and more robust and less subject to climate risk than agriculture. You know, so they can continue to do agriculture and we can assist them with, with intensifying agriculture on land that they have locally that they've already cleared. Um, and we can provide access to markets where they can get a higher value for their, for their crops and their efforts. Uh, but we can also subsidize their communities and build them schools and clinics and, and other things, uh, or they can do that themselves with money that they receive from uh, protecting the forests. So I think that's a, the new, but that, in the international dialogue, I think we're, there's, there's, there's still no great models. You know, there, there, are, there are pockets of, of amazing work, uh, inspirational work showing how this can work locally and, and how communities really do want to be part of a solution like that uh, in most cases, um, but they have to feed themselves. And so there's, there's still a big threat, big challenge to, to make that work at, at scale across the, all the, the threatened forests of the world. And, and what do you see as the, the most important barriers to, to scale up these uh, small pilots or small uh, examples of what's actually possible? What is needed to scale up uh, those to, to actually reach the impact we all need? Um, I, well, I, you know, let me look at the clock here. <laughs> just to say, uh, no, I'm see how much time. I, you know, I think for, uh, one of my pet peeves is uh, having come from the business community and having, you know, worked to try and find an economic solution for our work as well as for, for wildlife and forests around the world for 20 years. I've seen lots of ideas come and go and, and fads and things. And one of the things that drives me nuts um, is the direction that the impact investment community has, has taken um, and, uh, and I mean, you know, it's understandable. These are investors. And so for the most part, you, you, you don't start an impact investment community with, with activists, you, because they don't have any money to invest. You start an impact investment community with investors. Um, and so, yes, of course, those are investors that have a desire to, to be part of the solution. So they're nice investors, but they're investors. And, it, those investors have have choices in how they invest their money, and and they want to make sure that their own fortune is sustainable, so they can continue to invest. So they, they that's their first priority, and and maybe rightly so. Otherwise, their their role as an investor will diminish over time and disappear. So so they want uh, so the impact investment community, the activists, and and I don't know who else, uh, the creative folks that wanted to divert investments away from unsustainable investments towards uh, impact investments um, have created a story line which is in my opinion very potentially very threatening to the, 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 the success in the future. That story is that gee you know impact investments can have all the, the returns of a financial of a traditional financial investment plus these other bottom lines plus social benefits and biodiversity benefits. So, so look, you don't have to give up anything 
economically, and you get the benefit of doing something great for the planet. Who would not put their money into that? And, and so that's been the story in many conferences all over the world for many years now. And so those well-intentioned investors have all said, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, who would not do that? Let's put our money there. And so they all put vast amounts of money, you know, really, uh, into this impact investing field in fund after fund after fund. Um, and then, and then the, 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 the fund managers go out in the world looking for these deals that have the exact same return as they would get in a traditional investment and social benefit and, and, uh, and biodiversity benefit. And they, they can't find them. And so, so because it actually costs more money to do business in weird places where you're trying to provide economic solutions for small villages in rural communities a long way from a market. Um, and so these things cost more money and, and have a much higher risk profile and therefore uh, therefore, they will, they will not, they will need for an investor to be able to demonstrate a higher return for the investor to be interested, or the, return, the investor has to be willing to offset their financial return with the social and biodiversity return. So, and, and to this point, the story that's being sold to them is that they don't have to make that compromise. And that's damaging because it means the money's not really flowing into true impact investments. It means that eventually, because they were sold on the idea and they made the decision to move money based on the idea that they would get a similar return, in the end, the fund managers compromise, in our opinion, on the impact. They compromise always on the social and biodiversity benefit. And maybe not horribly. I'm sure these are all great funds doing good work, but they're not doing aggressive work in, in, to solve the problems that, that can't be solved without, further in, without massive investment. So my concern is really is that problem won't be solved until we stop telling that, that lie to the investment community and say, look, if you have the capacity, then you have to carve off some portion of your investment portfolio and assign it to a high risk uh, activity that could generate a return for you that is comparable, maybe not equal to, and it could, in some cases, generate a higher return. Who knows? But that should not be why you're doing it. Why you're doing it is to put a portion of your economic wealth to work to solve very hard problems that need your money and that will generate enormous social and biodiversity benefits well beyond what any impact fund is currently delivering uh, and that may be able to return a financial investment if they work. But many of them have not proven that they can work at scale, and therefore you're going to be taking a high risk. Until we start telling that story, I think we're, going to, we're, we're not going to make as much progress as we need to as quickly as possible in, in solving some of these larger problems and scaling them up. And I, uh, that concerns me. I think that we as a society need to find a better way to, to define triple bottom line. We need to define it not as triple return for the investor, which right now, when people look at triple bottom line, they think, well, I get the same financial bottom line, and then I get a, I get a social bottom line and a biodiversity bottom line. Who would not make that investment? But that's a fiction. And we need to start the conversation over with how do you value the social and biodiversity benefits in society, possibly even financially? How do you value them so that an investment that generates tremendous social and biodiversity or, and or biodiversity benefit is more highly prized than an investment that generates high financial return? Um, until we figure that one out, I suspect that progress will be too slow uh, in general um, and, and the lives of people like me will remain to be a significant challenge. But 
Um, but uh, um, yeah, so that's that's the the big challenge I see on the horizon is how do we rethink the the notion of value? I mean, money and and financial value is is an entirely fictitious creation of our societies to allow us to function. Um, we need a new fictitious creation in some respects that values in real terms social benefit and biodiversity benefit so that it's not a compromise. It's, a, it's, it's more valuable to us as a society right now. We need to acknowledge that and somehow, but also within the realities that people have to buy food to eat and pay for school fees and, and drive themselves around and all these other things. So, so that's the challenge, I think, is how do we create, how do we create real value in social and biodiversity impact uh, that is recognized in real terms that allows investors to make investment decisions purely on those benefits uh, rather than secondarily on those benefits. I think you, you touch on an extremely interesting point. We've sold a lot of these funds and a lot of these impact investments as it is something easy, as you can just do your normal investments, you put another set of glasses on and, and you'll be fine. And I think another underlying illusion is there it's it's easy in general to make money with money. It's easy to make investments. And if you're um, if you're just making investment, you probably will make an, uh, what X return because somebody in Instagram made so much money. And the truth is, it's not easy to grow money and it's not easy in, in general, it's not easy in the impact space and it's not easy in the normal economy or in the economy to to make more money with money. I mean, we only hear the success stories, but the truth is most people in Silicon Valley are losing money and we only hear the few that are doing it well and that fuels our mind like, like oh, I could also do that, which is probably not true. And if you then look at the impact investing space and you want to also make a, a 10x return, it's going to be very tricky because you are, like you said, dealing with agriculture, you're dealing with people far away from any road. And of course, there are real costs. It's the real economy and the real world. So you're, you're, you're happy if, you're, if you get a return and if that is compensating for inflation and, and some of the risk. And I think it's the, the illusion of, of easy returns in, in all of society is, is something we should also really battle because it makes any discussion really difficult because everybody would say, yeah, but I could get 20% there. But if you really look over long stretches of time, I mean, there, these returns aren't there anyway. But it's people's in people's mind that it's easy money somewhere else. So why would they invest in this case in Congo? Right. Yes. Exactly. I mean, if you, I mean, and the 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 the, the yeah, there are very, very very easy ways to to examine your premise because if you look at the performance of all the fund managers and all the all the high net worth individual asset managers of the world. What are they telling their clients they can receive, you know, as a as a as a long term return on their investment? It's not thirty percent, you know. So, and these are people whose entire lives have been around how to make money for their clients and scouring the world for a portfolio of investments to give them the best financial return, and they're not generating crazy returns. There, so you look at those averages and the performance of uh, of of money managers around the world, and you can get a pretty good idea of how difficult it is to actually make money with money. Because um, they have unlimited amounts of money and unlimited access to brains and and thought uh, leadership on how to turn that money into more money, and it, it is still tough. And still, they can't get it done. Yeah. 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 No, I mean a story I was told by somebody in Kenya. I, we, our, our core project is in Kenya. We've been there many years in Nairobi, which is a very nice African city. It's very very developed and has lots of creature comforts for expatriates. 
uh, and, and is a very short distance to elephants. So lots of people like uh, being in Nairobi. Um, so there are something like 89 uh, impact funds in uh, looking for venture deals in Nairobi. And uh, I had, I'm friends with some of the people involved in some of the funds. And one of them told me that, you know, over the past three years, um, all between all 89 of them, uh, they'd done two deals. So 80, you can imagine how much money in, in, is just sitting there look, looking for this. It's a management fee. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, just, just, just earning management fees for all these, these fund managers while they, while they look for the Holy Grail, while they, while they scour the landscape for this, this, uh, Uber of Nairobi, yeah. a mythical beast. Uh, exactly. The Uber of Nairobi. That's exactly what they're looking for. They're looking for the Uber of Nairobi or they're looking for the, uh, the, the Archer Daniels Midland of Nairobi, you know, the how to make an agricultural giant, a sustainable agricultural giant that will generate returns in the billions for their their high net worth investors. So, yeah, so that's uh, so it, there's work to be done there. I, I think that that money is it could be doing far more good with if the storyline had been different. If the story, I, I don't I don't dispute that that at today in today's world. Financial investors need the promise of a return, and that's not, I'm not, a promise of a financial return for their financial investment. Uh, I, and, but I think that their expectations need to be reset in terms of what is possible, and we need to find a way to reward them for the social and, and biodiversity benefit uh, on top of, in real terms, on top of the financial reward, uh, if we really want to see uh, success in that s sector. Thank, thank you for for that last point. I think it's it's a great uh, point to to end this interview. But to finalize it with one more question: um, What should smart impact investors look for? After all, we heard now to to become active in this space. What would you advise them? Um, I would advise them to focus on the impact that they want to have. There's no point in being in an impact investment fund if the fund isn't having the impact. Uh, I mean, there is a point. Maybe it makes for great cocktail party conversation. But uh, but I, most of it, in my opinion, and from the ones I've met, most of these impact investors, when you get to the source of the money, they truly want to have an impact in some aspect of, of life that they have a passion for. Um, and so my advice to them is don't lose sight of the passion you have for the impact you desire and make that requirement the highest order requirement for some section of your some segment of your portfolio and don't let the fund manager come back to you and say well I, you know i wasn't able to find anything uh because what he's essentially saying is uh i can't i'm worried about my own job if i can't deliver a financial return to you that is competitive because of what I told you when I established the fund and I couldn't find anything that creates a competitive return and addresses your passion. That's essentially the long version of what they're telling you. So it's incumbent on the impact investor to say, all right, try again. Uh, don't worry. Here's a five-year contract uh, to go find me these deals, regardless of the financial return. Uh, we'll, yes, we can have a financial return target, but uh, I, I really want to see my fund, my money make an impact on this issue. So go find me deals that address this issue, regardless of the financial return, and then we'll have a conversation about whether or not I'm willing to accept the return, risk, etc. profile of those deals. 
but really focus on the impact. Don't focus, don't think just because you're investing in an education fund that you're going to have high impact on education. Uh, because if you've made the principal criteria their financial return, they'll, the fund manager will find a creative way to call it education and make the return in order to keep their jobs. Um, so I, I think a lot of the onus has to be, which is, you know, again, not opposite of what they were, their, the original intent. These, these investors wanted to have the impact. The problem is they also wanted to get rid of the problem of finding the deals. And that's where the, the dilemma occurs. They, they wanted to hand off the, the challenge of finding those opportunities to have that impact. And in doing so, they're now employing somebody to do it for them. And that person has a whole different risk profile than the original investor. And, and therein lies the dilemma is how do, you, how do you transfer that risk profile that the original investor has through the funds and in many cases through multiple layers of funds because the money is so big these days in impact that, that there's you know, a global education fund that invests in, in continental education funds that invest in national education funds that invest in girls education funds that, that finally invest in a school. Uh, and so how do you transfer the the economic or the, the risk profile that of the original investor and the desire for impact first uh, through all those layers of professional management uh, to make sure that the actual investments meet the original impact desire. That's, that's a real challenge and I don't know the answer, uh, but I do know that the impact investors themselves cannot delegate that responsibility. They cannot, they cannot, uh, they need to focus on that issue if they want to see that, that problem solved. Thank you so much, Mike, for, for this interview. I'm sure we'll be checking in uh, in the next months and years to see on the progress and we'll hopefully have, a, have more of these conversations. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks very much, Ken. Just listen to an interview with Mike Kroczynski, founder and CEO of Wildlife Works. I hope you enjoyed it and join us again soon for more of these podcasts. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.